0: Welcome to the Buker and Friends podcast. Here is your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buker. Rick Buker.
1: Welcome to another episode of Buker Friendless, subsidiary of Buker and Friends and part of the United Wecast Network. I'm Rick Buker. You can see me on FS1, read me on Bleacher Report, and follow me on Twitter at Rick Buker and on Instagram at Rick underscore Buker. All right, there are two topics I want to hit in this podcast. First, Steve Kerr's activism when it comes to politics in general and gun control in particular. Steve Kerr obviously being the head coach of the Golden State Warriors and an assistant coach with the U.S. men's national team. Speaking of which, second topic, U.S. men's national basketball program and the slew of players choosing not to play for the team in the upcoming World Cup competition. Those two topics, by the way, are in some ways connected. It's been a while since I spent any time around the national program. I have the last couple weeks. Spent a couple days in Vegas uh, at practice, and then I am now in L.A. catching up with the team for a couple days at the Lakers training facility. That's a far cry from some 20 years ago when... I was with ESPN and they were flying me to Puerto Rico to do a cover story, among other things, on Kevin Garnett. A cover story, by the way, in which we painted him blue and had him pose shirtless on the cover. I can't tell you why we painted him blue. It was Minnesota Timberwolves blue. When you look at Kevin with his dark skin, you could barely tell that he was painted blue. At least I could barely tell. And I don't know why we had him essentially naked, but we seemed to do a lot of that in the magazine's infancy. It was an extra large magazine, height and width-wise, lending itself to extra beautiful artwork, and we exploited that. So those were clearly more innocent times, by the way, pre-9-11, uh, because I was in Puerto Rico for well over a week, and I would guess the media there numbered a dozen or so And team, players, media, everybody stayed in the same resort on the south side of the island in a fairly remote location. Uh, The resort had a casino, and the interaction between media players, coaches, and accompanying GMs and NBA personnel was really seamless. I can recall all of us gambling elbow to elbow in the casino, casino, uh even having an after-hour private card game in one of the suites that the uh, national team was using. We all rode together on the buses to the other side of the island where the arena was. And at one point, I found two local pros, surf pros, to take Tim Duncan, Jason Kidd, and a few other players to a surf spot, uh, again, on a, another part of the island. This was in the days not unlike now, when the interest in being on the national team had waned and the program found itself scrambling for star players to participate. Uh, as a result, we had stopped waltzing our way to gold and collecting the automatic bid for the next competition that comes with it. Instead, we actually had to go through regional qualifying, hence the trip to Puerto Rico and guys like Duncan and Kid, who wanted to restore the program back to respectability. Uh, Now, going to Las Vegas to catch up with the national team felt like a return to those more relaxed times. Uh, Greg Popovich stopped to talk after he did the day's media scrum. Uh, Actually, said, I want to give you a hug. Gave me a hug. Asked about my family. That's right. Pop. Surly. Grumpy old Pop. The bane of my and every other sideline reporter's existence or media person just looking to get a standard soundbite in a press conference, he gave me a hug. That Pop. Understand, we go quite a ways back. Pop was an assistant coach with the Warriors for a year before starting his tenure in San Antonio, and that happened to be the same year I started my career covering the NBA as the Warriors beat writer. I've been in his Spurs office when he started to cry, talking about a close friend of his who died. And as I mentioned in a previous podcast, I also witnessed Bob Lanier cry in his office when he was the Warriors interim head coach. So that's two NBA head coaches I've seen cry, which sticks out to me because I'm going to guess it's two more than the average person covering the NBA has seen. And I'm not suggesting I have a talent for making NBA head coaches cry, although you're going to hear where I almost added a third to the list. But... It's just the kind of thing that you never forget because it's so out of character. The job, after all, demands riding herd on men more powerful than them in every way. And I believe showing vulnerability and genuine emotion can be extremely powerful and influential. But I don't know of too many NBA head coaches who have experimented with that theory. Uh, Las Vegas felt like old times around the national team for another reason. I asked uh, Steve Kerr if we could get a drink or a cup of coffee. I wanted to check in with him on a variety of fronts, subjects that were a little far afield to broach in a post-practice media session. And I hadn't, hadn't seen him for a while, and I just seemed like a time where if he had the time, we might be able to connect. Uh, he readily agreed, and uh, we were going to get a drink one night, and then he texted me and said, you want to get dinner instead? Turns out that uh, Pop, it was one, one of the few nights that Pop didn't corral everyone uh, on the staff and take them for some major dining experience, which is what Pop does. So he proposed dinner. I thought even better. Okay. Kerr and I go back a ways as well. I covered him as a player in both Chicago and San Antonio. I worked with him at TNT on NBA broadcasts, and I've been around him on a regular basis since he's been with the Warriors, obviously. Um, We have been mistaken for each other on more than a few occasions, and that's actually become a joke between us. Uh, In fact, when we were headed to dinner, we ran into Mark Few, the Gonzaga coach who assisted Jeff Van Gundy with the uh, U.S. Select team, and I, I said... You know, there was a time when I wasn't all that excited about being mistaken for Steve, but for about the last five years, it's been pretty great. So uh, now, this is where talking about my interaction with Steve that evening gets a little tricky. I never pulled out a notebook or a tape recorder during our conversation, although we did talk about the slate of stories that I have on my plate, he asked about them. Still, I don't want to portray a confidence. It is invaluable to me to have frank, honest conversations with people in the league to truly understand what is going on. I've had more of those around the national team than I've had my notebook out or my tape recorder on. If nothing else, it allows me to ignore the dead ends and red herrings that surface, whether it be from people in the league or stories written by other media members, and allows me to concentrate on stories and elements that are real and legit. So, the only part of the evening I'll share with you has to do with gun control. Kerr, as you may be aware, is very outspoken that we need legislation to curb gun control in our country. What struck me is that both on our way into the restaurant and as we were getting ready to leave, uh, total strangers came up to Steve. Not to talk to him about being part of five championships as a player or three as a coach or what it was like to play with Michael Jordan or Coach Steph Curry, but to thank him passionately for using his platform to speak out on gun control. It was really it caught me off guard, especially in a place like, like Vegas. Just wasn't expecting it. The first guy who approached with his somewhat embarrassed girlfriend or wife talked about losing a friend who was shot back in 94. And the next guy was equally adamant. Please keep it up, Steve. It means a lot to us. Uh, it means a lot to a lot of us, he said. So for those who may not know, Steve was 18 years old when his dad was shot and killed by Lebanese ter- terrorists at the American University of Beirut in Lebanon. His dad was president of the university. And I asked Steve how often he thought of his dad when someone came up to to him to commend him on on talking about gun violence. And this is where he surprised me. He he paused and I could tell immediately that he was choked up, um, thereby nearly bringing the number of head coaches I've seen tear up to three part of me regretted asking the question as soon as I saw how close to the surface his dad's death was still some 35 years later. Uh, but he, he eventually answered the question and he said, you know, it's it's obviously the, the circumstances under which his dad was killed are different than the ones that we're dealing with in the country now. But He said he thought about him whenever there was any sort of shooting Um, because what a shooting conjures up for him is the abrupt loss he felt upon hearing his dad had died, the suddenness and the permanence of it. Now, I've I've never had a loved one shot, so I can't relate or or killed in that sort of... um, dramatic way. Uh, I did nearly lose my dad a couple of years ago to the point where the doctors told our family that we should prepare our goodbyes. And when I got the call to do that, the pain and sadness dropped me to my knees. I imagine the shock of not being able to say goodbye or prepare to say goodbye, Um, not to be able to prepare for that loss would take the pain and sadness to depths way beyond what I felt. Steve's militancy, if it can be called that when it comes to gun control, when it comes to his anger with Congress for refusing to take any measures to curb it, is inspired by seeing other people needlessly go through the pain and anguish he did when he lost his father. I don't know that I I quite understood that before we had our conversation and I saw his reaction to my question that night, but I get it now. And I personally, I've wrestled with how much I should use my platform on behalf of social causes or issues that I feel strongly about. Um, I am one who does not believe in staying silent in if seeing something going wrong, uh, if feeling something's not right to speak up. And, but on the other hand, my social platform, my my social media platform was not created behind that. And so I I really haven't come to a conclusion yet. I, at one point early on in this presidency after the man in office did something I considered wholly regrettable and embarrassing. I tweeted something to the effect of, are we making America great again yet? And, the, and now I, when I think about it, it's like, That incident was a thousand incidents ago. I mean, it's almost comical. But the keyboard gangsters descended en masse. But I left it at that. I didn't didn't respond. Um, And the whole exercise reminded me that most issues of any depth can't be addressed via social media. The best you can do is state your position on a a particular subject or tear into someone else's. Now, Jason Whitlock, my FS1 colleague, has taken Kerr to task for his social activism, both in interviews and social media. I haven't been on the show with him when he's done it, but I've seen his takes on the the show's social media feed. What I respect about Jason is that he doesn't play favorites, and he isn't afraid to take on anyone. And when he does... He comes with both barrels. The word withering comes to mind when I think of the typical Whitlock. All that said, I think he'd see Kerr's activism in a different light if he saw how personal it is for him. This has nothing to do with being woke and everything to do with having a grandfather who is part of a U.S. humanitarian organization in the Middle East and a father who was murdered all of which I saw in Kerr's face when I asked about the memory of his father. Now, as I said, I'm recording this in LA after checking back in with Team USA as they prepare to head to Australia and then on to China for the World Cup competition. And it's been interesting because... The conversation, while there's plenty of interviews being conducted and people are doing various stories on the players here, it the conversation has been more about who is not here or who is bowed out than who is going to make the team, or at least that's how it has struck me. And it once again, we're raising the question of the value of the national team and the value of it for the players playing in it. And it reminds me of where the program was in the late 90s and early 2000s when the redeeming value then of playing for Team USA dissipated. Every squad paled in comparison to the original Dream Team. That was the general public perception. And suddenly the rest of the world was giving us far more competition than we were used to. Something was wrong. We weren't just supposed to win. And we weren't just supposed to win the gold. We were supposed to pass.
0: flushcarecom slash weight loss.
1: found everybody. And when we suddenly weren't winning by 20, 30 points, everybody was like, what's wrong? And so the redeeming value for the players, the pressure, especially at that time when we were still selecting and preparing as if it was a glorified all-star team, uh, made things very challenging. And guys started to to, to bail. And I understand why. Now, what I'm not quite sure about is why the appeal of playing for Team USA seems to have fallen off once more. Some people have suggested that it's the politics. Sometimes some have suggested that uh, this is the World Cup and that the feelings will be different about the Olympics. And I've been told by. A program official that the guys that go this summer are probably the guys that are going to go to the Olympics. That they're not going to—they're going to reward the guys who are here now, and uh, and and not push them aside because the Olympics have just always—they've always carried a little more meaning, value, importance to players. But ultimately, I get the sense that again, it's—it's just all been watered down that NBA championships mean far more to guys. And I'm not even sure, honestly, it brings to mind, I'm not even sure if NBA championships carry the same weight. The decision by Kevin Durant to go to Brooklyn is a perfect example. Or LeBron joining the Lakers last year, knowing that he had a team that was not capable of competing for a championship it's changed it's there's something that has changed for sure and i don't know that it's just with the national team but since i didn't know and since i'm here i decided to ask pacers big man miles turner about his motivation to play and why he some he thought some guys had lost theirs here is that conversation there's a reason you choose to fly privately into the New York metro area and it's to avoid delays. When flying into New York City, Republic Jet Center in Farmingdale, New York should be your only choice. Don't get caught up in delays flying into Teterboro or White Plains. Choose Republic Jet Center and you'll experience all the reasons why you chose to fly privately in the first place. RJC is a proud part of the Signature Flight Support Network and getting to the city is as quick as a 12-minute helicopter ride, which they can arrange. Uh, they have a luxurious lobby. Uh, it's part of a new 100,000-square-foot facility. There's self-serve snacks, beverages, uh, all available in a contemporary lounge, with plush seating, large flat screen, scenic views. And if needed, concierge can gladly set you up with accommodations, ground transportation, dining reservations, whatever you might need. uh, And that's helicopter flights to Manhattan or the Hamptons, wherever you're headed. It is a comprehensive white glove FBO service, and their premier affiliations are the compelling reason why aircraft owners and operators benefit from selecting our facility. Grant Hill, when he took part in our sports PR summit, flew into the RJC and said it was fantastic. He also loved the Uh, fuel prices, apparently. So they look forward to seeing you at their facility on the next visit. And if you mention this ad, you can get fuel at the low price of cost plus $1. So visit them at www.republicjetcenter.com or you can call them 631-881-9520 for more information. They look forward to seeing you what makes this most
0: attractive to you? I think what makes it most attractive is wearing those three letters, man. I mean, I got a chance to do it in high school. You know, I played the few 18s and that was such an incredible honor, just winning a gold medal at that level. But to win it at the highest level, yeah. I think that's what uh, the biggest appeal is to me. You know, you can yeah. take a lot of things away from it as far as, you know, working with Coach working or Coach Kerr, working with Coach Pierce, oh, yeah. working with these, like, high-level coaches. That's another thing. You know, it's one thing if you, you know, you keep hearing the same voice every day, you know, sure. from your perspective, coach, in your organization. Sure. But if you hear, you know, all these great coaches and kind of take everything a little bit away from them, yeah. all it does is help you going forward. And then I guess the third I additive mean, is just playing with such great talent. These are guys we're normally playing against, yep. but, you know, being able to play with them yep. and uh, kind of just, uh, you know, seeing how quickly we can come together, I think it's kind of uh, cool to watch it, um, you know, fold up
1: time. So how do you, so what do you make of the guys who... Have decided for one reason or another not to participate because that's really what I'm trying to get to the heart of it. it's like yeah. Why? Because there's it's gone through waves. You know, there was a time where late '90s, 2000s, guys got after the Dream Team. All the comparisons were to the Dream Team. The guys got kind of tired of it because it was like you had to win, right? You guys didn't prep as much as you do now. So all the pressure was on to win, and if you didn't win big enough, then people were dissatisfied with the performance. And so right. guys got to a point where they're like, dude, this really it's is not it's not it. it's not worth it. Like mm-hmm. and guys were bailing. I don't know if it's gotten back to that or if it's just it's lost some of its appeal. I don't know what it is, and that's why, well...
0: I, you know, I think it's it's a number of things. I think a lot of guys, you know, especially guys that, one, have won the gold medal before yeah. and, two, are kind of older in their careers. Yeah. I think, you know, 82-game season, it's a long-ass season, yeah. especially if you're a playoff team, you know, running, or, you know, a high playoff team running in contention, so a lot of guys don't want to play, you know, 10, 15 games before training camp, do all this travel before they go in, yeah. you know, and then I think guys like me, who, you know, younger guys, who never really had a chance to experience before. This is something that we we jump at this opportunity, and marvel at it, you know, whereas guys who've done it before, it's a little lackluster because they've won gold medals before stuff they've done in their career already. So it's not much, I, I guess an achievement to them, I guess, you know?
1: So what if they, because this is my theory, is that it should be young guys. It should be guys who coming in one physically, it's not gonna be the same drain as a guy who's late twenties, mm-hmm. early thirties and it allows you to develop, right? Uh, Allows you to have the experience, and you know what? If we have some close games, we end up losing now and then, like, that's okay, because we'll be developing in a way that we develop the rest of the world by sending our absolute best there. Um, what
0: do you make of that? that? I think it's a, I think I think yes or no. I think yes to go younger it's kind of cool because guys are able to come in here and kind of uh, get that first experience. But you got to have some veteran leadership in there as well. You know, yeah. you got to have a sprinkle in a couple guys here and there. So okay. the guys that are are coming in who've been there for like the Kimbas and the Chris, the guys that are, have been in the league, you know, they got to be able to kind of have somebody to mentor us. You know, gotcha. you know we get to play these teams that are these guys, these these um, European teams, these these um, these other countries. They've yeah. been together for oh, how, yeah. how, years how long? Years. Yeah. And they developed that camaraderie over time, whereas we had to develop that in three weeks. Yep. You know, so I mean, it's you know, listen, it's going to be tough. There's going to be a lot of challenges put in our way, but I think it's going to make the journey that much sweeter. You know.
1: Now, I can see a place for a few select vets on the team, but overall, I believe the focus should be on using younger players who are excited about playing and could use this as a true learning experience. I'll tell you. One of the reasons that Derek White has stood out and made the jump from the select team, basically the practice squad, to now competing for a spot on this roster is simply because he knows, and it's, it sounds like an oversimplified way of saying it, but he knows how to play. And he knows how to play without the ball. And he knows how to manipulate the game without having to overwhelm somebody with his athleticism which the Europeans and the international teams and the way the game is played and officiated takes a lot of that away from us and then there's the unfamiliarity with the with the ball and how the ball feels and but I'm I honestly I've been struck by the NBA talent here a lot of young exciting talent but guys that do not know how to play without the ball and are not really all that adept at passing and making the next play, the nuances of the game. It really underscores that our game is more athletic than ever and it's impressive what we can do athletically. But the finer points of the game, looking at, the crew here, because these are these are not the best players, but they're very good players. There are plenty of guys that we expect are going to be all-stars in the future. And they are limited in how they can play. And as a result, Pop is limited in what he's going to be able to do. He's really going to have to mix and match the pieces that he has. Because uh, and, and one of the biggest uh, elements that he has is with the game on the line who's going to give the ball to and is going to be i mean aside from aside from not knowing the nuances there there aren't a whole lot of guys on this team who can get their own bucket against any defense Donovan Mitchell and Derek White, I can't put Derek White in that category. He's just—he's tremendous at playing the pick and roll. And not only is good at feeling it out and either getting the big man the ball at the right time or finding the best shot he can get, he, he, he is very good at creating a shot off of that. But Donovan Mitchell might be the closest thing they have to a closer. And he can be very good. He can also be very streaky. Uh, I, I I have to admit, and I haven't seen, you know, we only see bits and pieces of practice and whatnot. I have come to truly appreciate the personality and the presence of Kemba Walker, but he has not been overwhelming by any stretch on the court. So, uh, that's a guy that you would you 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 might have thought would be one of those go-to guys. Uh, ultimately, I, I he hasn't shown it so far. Now, still exhibition in Spain. They're going to go to Australia and play some exhibitions, and we'll see how it goes. But and the Spain the Spain exhibition will give us a real it'll be a good litmus for exactly where we are because Spain is still a powerhouse when it comes to international competition. So, but ultimately, I believe the focus of the national program at this point should be to use it as a learning experience in the development of our our players where their game is going to be heightened by having to learn how to play the international game against international competition. It's what the rest of the world has done with us for decades. And I guess I look at the game of basketball now as such a global sport that the idea that there's something wrong if the U.S. is not on top just doesn't ring true or bother me. I want to see the game played at the highest level, and I want to see the U.S. game and the game in the NBA played at the highest level. So if we can develop American players in a way that AAU and the college game are not developing them, if the national team, a taste of the national team, a couple-year run through the national team, can expedite that growth, I'm all for that. Uh, I'm also over the whole patriotism angle when it comes to playing or not playing for Team USA. No doubt it is a thrill to represent the country, as Miles mentioned and it's an added thrill to win on its behalf but are we really still playing the game of if we're you know the best in basketball that makes us a great country i think we can see through that at this point it's it's playing a game you can take pride in it you can win on behalf of your country it doesn't necessarily define what country or what kind of country you are so Let's ease up on the cries of guys not being grateful to be Americans if they choose not to play. Being a millionaire or making money from playing a sport doesn't make someone any more obligated to compete in international competition than a millionaire businessman is obligated to outdo business businessmen from other countries or serve in the National Guard or the uh, National Reserve. A person should do it because it has meaning for them. And... Well, just like that, I veered into a socio-political debate. <laughs> Man, that was easy and unintended. So let's take that as a cue to wrap this episode of Buker Friendless, subsidiary of Buker and Friends, part of the United Wecast Network. Please check out our other podcasts, by the way, age groupies two endurance athletes talking about everything under the sun when it comes to why they spend as much time as they do competing and attempting these physical feats that most of us, uh, most of us find a little mind-boggling. And then, of course, Gary Owen, his Get Some podcast, which is doing extremely well, but it's, that, is a, that is a funny listen on a weekly basis. Please check that out. All right. Uh, And also don't forget, uh, leave us a rating, review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And then if you want to be eligible for some prizes, please uh, screenshot it and send it to at Buker friends, and you will be eligible for those. Next podcast, I will be catching up with Ryan Hollins once again, and we will take a look at who as of right now, right now middle of the summer we see in the finals next summer that and everything else that's going on with the nba might get his take on uh, team usa and what it meant to him when he was still playing in the league and prospect of playing and why he thinks that it might have changed all right in the meantime as always thanks for listening